Okay, well, we have a little video clip to start off with, and we're starting off with it because, um, because of our, our challenges when it comes to audio-visual stuff. It's just easier to do it at the beginning, uh, even though I'll be coming back to it later. So, um, yeah, let's just watch. It's about two minutes. We'll keep buffering. Well, here, let me ask you a question. Just, just wave at me when you guys finally have it up, okay? All right, so what I want you to think about for a second is uh, when was the last time that God came through for you? When was the last time that God came through for you? At Scum of the Earth, we are somewhat morose kinds of people, and we like to talk about when we think God doesn't come through for us and how to kind of hold on, become part of that white knuckle club that doesn't let go of our faith in God because it appears like he's not coming through. We major in those kinds of times and talking about those kinds of times. But the truth is, you probably wouldn't hang on for very, very long if there weren't times when God indeed did come through for you. You can look back in your life and go, I remember at this particular point, I was having the most difficult time in my life, and God showed up in the form of an envelope full of money in my mailbox. Or God showed up in the form of my neighbor who came over and sat with me and talked with me and prevented me from doing something really, really stupid. Or God came through for me, oh my gosh, in the form of people at my church. In the middle of a sermon, I got this realization. That doesn't happen near as often as I would like it to happen. But there are times when God comes through for you. And one of the times that we're going to be talking about tonight in the life of the prophet Daniel is when God came through for him. Uh, if you remember from two weeks ago, because we had a snow day last week, if you remember two weeks ago, um, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had this dream that troubled him greatly. And so he wakes up. And he calls his magicians, his enchanters, his astrologers, his diviners, the magi of Babylon, to come and help him with the interpretation of the dream. Now, I'm feeling like if you're a king, you don't wait till morning to make sure all those guys get their sleep. Because if the king ain't sleeping, nobody's sleeping, right? It's kind of like if a mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? So he gets all these guys together, and they say, well, king, tell us your dream. And the king says, now, I'll tell you what. You tell me my dream, and then interpret it. Because I know if you can tell me what my dream was, then you can interpret it also. And they're going, wait, wait, stop. King, nobody can do that. Like, only the gods can tell what you dreamed, and they don't live among men. Although one day God would live among men, which is kind of the irony of that situation. So you tell us what you dreamed. We'll go to our books. And they found all these tablets in ancient Babylonian arche archaeological sites where they, they have dream interpretation books. And then we'll tell you what the dream means. The king says, you know what, you're just trying to stall for more time. If you don't tell me what the dream is and what the meaning of the dream is, I'm going to cut you into pieces and I'm going to turn your houses into piles of rubbles. So um, they don't know what to do. So what happens is the, uh, the, the commander, one of the commanders the, of the military, comes to Daniel's apartment 
to kill him because he's part of this group of people after having gone through the Babylonian school. I have to think that that would be an awkward situation. You get a knock at the door, you open it up as a military guy. Hi, I'm here to kill you. So Daniel uh, gets taken to the king and says, King, give me a chance to seek the God of heaven about this whole matter. And so Daniel goes back to his buddies and he says, Dudes, we got to pray. And they, I think that's the actual Hebrew, Dudes, we have to pray. And so they get down and they pray. And sometime during the night, Daniel's given a vision of what the king's dream was, and not only what the dream was, but how to interpret it. And we're going to be going over the meaning of that dream today because King Nebuchadnezzar is given this dream that tells Gentile history, non-Jewish political history from his own time until the coming of the kingdom of Christ. This dream spans millennia in its scope. And we're going to go over that today. Do we have? Yes. Okay. My grandfather was a Christian pastor in Germany. He always said he was born on the wrong side of the ocean at the wrong time of history. Uh, he was drafted into the German army along with every able-bodied person right as the Second World War began in 1939. And uh, immediately placed on a frontline unit, Unit 699, that was placed in the heart of Russia and moving through the Ukraine and into Russia in the southern flank they were heading for the city of Baku, where their goal was to basically capture the oil reserves of the Russian armies and the Russian government. And uh, being on a bridge building unit right at the front lines, often behind enemy lines, there were huge amounts of casualties and, and a lot of, lot of heartache. One day, his commanding officer towards the end of the war called him into his office, his makeshift office, and asked him a very direct question. He said, Herr Hazel, do you believe that Germany is going to win this war? And the question was kind of a catch-22, because if you're a patriotic soldier, you're going to say, of course we're going to win this war. But also being a Bible student and as pastor and having studied prophecy, my grandfather knew that, that Germany would not win the war. And so he was conflicted, and he didn't know exactly what to say. And at that moment, he said a silent prayer to heaven. And then he said, is this an official or an unofficial question? And they had kind of an unwritten code within their unit that when they had their hats off, they could speak in an unofficial capacity. And so the commanding officer stopped for a moment and then he said, okay, it's unofficial. And he took off his hat and placed it on his desk and my grandfather did the same. And he pulled out a Bible from his pocket, opened it up to Daniel chapter 2 and began to tell the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he said, well, I don't believe that Hitler is correct. His empire cannot last a thousand years as he's promising the German people. This war has to fail because of biblical prophecy and how everything has been fulfilled in the past. All right. We'll pick up that story a little bit later. So what is this dream? And why is this so important? And why is this so important for you? Unlike a lot of sermons uh, where I try really, really hard to make the scriptures come alive to you in your own personal life, this is a passage that is going to have to be not so much about you, 
if that's okay. It's about God and about what God is doing in the earth and for all time. I mean, you play a part in that, in that you are a person on the earth while God is doing his thing. But I hope that you get as excited as I have been about biblical prophecy and its fulfillment. i got to tell you, and my dad knows this, when I first became a Christian, I was super excited about Bible prophecy. It was 1970s. It was all about the late great planet Earth and about how Jesus was coming back anytime soon. And I remember, you know, getting so worked up about this. And uh, I remember talking to my mom about it and saying, Mom, this is so exciting. And my mom's looking at me with this kind of quizzical look on her face. And she finally says, Mike. Is Jesus coming back for sure? I said, yes, Mom. That's what the Bible says. She goes, okay. If that's the case, then go clean your room. <laughs> Do your chores. If it's a done deal, it's a done deal. Why don't you start helping out like you're supposed to? So, you know, I think to the great delight of... Uh, my family, I finally got off the Bible prophecy kick for a while. Because it's going to happen, right? And I've kind of left it low for a long time. And now, coming back into this, it's, I'm wondering, okay, Lord, why, you know, I mean, I've got an extra week to think about this sermon. What's the deal? And I think part of the deal for me was that I had to reconnect with that passion about the way that God has arranged history in the future. And that what it does for me is, is it gives the Bible validity. It gives the Christian story credibility that it is true. Because if so much of what Daniel saw 500 years before Jesus was on the earth, if all that is true and came true the way he said it came true, then I know the last part will come true as well. So Daniel has to interpret this dream, and God gives him the dream and your interpretation. I'm just going to read you a portion of Daniel's reaction to what God has done for him after God gives him this great revelation. And uh, it's Daniel 2, verses 20 through 23. It should be up there. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. Now Daniel had seen his own king, the king of Israel, deposed. He had seen that king's eyes gouged out just after that king's sons were all slaughtered in front of him. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, wanted to make sure the last thing the king of Judah saw before he died was his sons being slaughtered, and then he put his eyes out. So the threat to kill Daniel and his co-workers was not an empty threat. And then he saw Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, rising in power and authority over the whole earth. 
He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, in the darkness of the night of your dreams. And light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And this was the dream that Daniel saw. The same one that God had given Nebuchadnezzar. In his dream, he saw this great, enormous, terrible statue with a head of gold, with chest and arms of silver, with a middle and thighs of bronze, with legs of solid iron, and feet that were made up of this composite of iron and clay. And then he saw a rock that was not cut out by any human hands, a rough-hewn rock that came shooting across, struck this enormous statue in its feet, turned the statue to dust, and then the rock became a mountain that filled the whole earth. That was the dream. And Daniel gets the interpretation. Let's go to the first part of the dream. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. This, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, is you, O king, you are the head of gold. Now, Babylon, we know, was a gilded city. It was a city where gold was plentiful. Did you know that ancient Babylon was larger than ancient Rome? Did you know that ancient Babylon was larger than Athens, Greece, at the height of its power? And you know that the Babylonians took pride in how much gold they had. Now, here's the weird thing about the statue that the most precious metals are on the top, but they are the weakest. And the least precious metals are on the bottom, but they are the strongest. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. These are geopolitical world kingdoms. It is the time of the Gentiles. This is non-Jewish history that God is revealing to Nebuchadnezzar. And the first world empire that we're aware of that covered more than just its own borders is the Babylonian Empire. And I don't know why God chose gold. I don't know what it is about the Babylonian Empire. Certainly Nebuchadnezzar had a reverence for God. We'll see as we go through the book of Daniel that other kings simply do not have, even though he's a Gentile king. God deals with him personally in ways that you would think he would only deal with Jewish kings. But maybe that's part of it. Maybe somehow the Babylonians had a reverence for God that other kingdoms would not have. Maybe that's why it's gold. I don't know. I'm just telling you what the dream means as far as we're shown. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. Now... Further down, the chest and arms are of silver, a less precious metal but stronger. 
Babylon was conquered by a combination of two nations, the Medes and the Persians, Media and Persia. You've got a left arm, you've got a right arm, and in this statue, you've got a coalition of two nations that conquer Babylon in a single night. How could this happen? This is pretty amazing. Babylon had two sets of walls, and each set of walls was a triple wall. It was impregnable. The river Euphrates ran through the city. They had gates that came down into the river so you couldn't get into the city by means of a boat on the river. So what the Medes and the Persians did, unbeknownst to the Babylonians, was they diverted the river upstream from Babylon. They built a canal, took the whole river in a different direction, dried up the riverbed, and then came in underneath the gate that was on the Euphrates River. Soldiers came in, opened up the other gates so the rest of the army could come through, and Babylon fell in a single night. We'll find out about that later on in this book as well. So Daniel predicts several years hence the fall of Babylon. This happened during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. What about the belly and thighs of bronze? The belly and thighs of bronze, if you know anything about history, you know when we think about bronze, we think about the Greeks and the Greek empire. Specifically, we think about Alexander the Great. A lot of the Greeks' implements were made of bronze or brass. And um, Alexander the Great conquered the world in record time. He was in his early 20s when he ascended the throne of his father, Philip of Macedonia. And then he conquered the world in lightning speed. By the time he was 32 years old, he had conquered all the known world, had gone even as far as India. He conquered the, uh, the Persians. Now, here's a little history you'll be interested in. You guys have seen probably the movie The 300, right? about the 300 Spartans. Now, who were the 300 Spartans fighting? They were fighting the Persians. The Persians were being led at that point by a Persian king named Xerxes. Just so you know, Xerxes was the husband of Queen Esther, who you've read about in the Bible. So they defeat the 300 Spartans by means of trickery, right? And then go on to get defeated by the Athenians. And Persia never could conquer Greece. And then what happened many years later was the Greeks came back with a vengeance. And they decimated Persia and everybody else. At the battle where Alexander beat the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians outnumbered him, some historians say, as much as ten to one. But because of his battle strategies, he was able to win. And this is why he swept over the world so quickly. So the Greek Empire is portrayed by the belly and thighs of bronze. Next come the legs of iron. Who supplanted the Greeks in terms of world domination? We all know it was the Romans. The Romans were the strongest military machine 
the world had ever known. They smashed everything in their path. There are two legs, a left leg and a right leg. Interestingly enough, there were two seats of power in the Roman Empire, east and west. In the west you had Rome, in the east you had Constantinople. Jesus came during the time of the Roman Empire. It's interesting that this stone does not strike the statue in the legs. Otherwise, it would be talking about the first coming of Jesus, which wasn't very geopolitical in nature. Little baby Jesus crying in a manger. Or no crying he makes, sorry. I think Jesus cried. Anyway, he certainly cried a lot later on. So this rock that hits the statue is not talking about the first coming of Jesus. Because somehow in the feet, there's this strange mixture of iron and clay. It's got some of the strength of iron in it, and it's got this clay. It's kind of like, it's not really an empire that's coalesced into a single unit, but it's kind of like this coalition of nations that is not quite holding together, but holding together enough to support the statue. That's where the stone hits it. And all I can say is, is that the feet, partly of iron and partly of baked clay, is some kind of an amalgamation of world powers that is yet to be revealed. So all of this so far that Daniel explains to the king is true in our history, but we don't know exactly what the feet of iron and clay are. I mean, some people think that maybe, you know, well, there's ten toes, and so we have later on, we have ten horns, and Daniel will be talking about that in a few weeks. It could be the nation states of Israel, or of Europe. Do you know that uh, it's interesting that, um, that, that through the years, uh, European rulers have taken the name of Caesar? Did you know that? Do you know that the word Kaiser in German, is just simply the word for Caesar? Did you know that the czar in Russia was simply the Russian word for Caesar? And did you know that both of those people were in power until 1918? I mean, we've had the French rise up with the Holy Roman Empire, you know, Charlemagne and the Franks, and we've had the Germans try, and we've had the British try to rule the world, and we've had, you know, all sorts of people who were part of the old Roman Empire try to rule the world, and they couldn't. Even Germany tried to rule the world, but it could not rule the world because they were defeated not once but twice in world wars. It's just interesting. This is the time in our future when the geopolitical reign of Christ is going to come back and rule the world. Let's go to the next slide. <coughs> in review, we've got the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire, which began in about 605 B.C. Then the Medes and the Persians take over. We know this from history in about 536 B.C., the Greek Empire begins somewhere around 330 B.C. 
The Roman Empire, according to this table, starts around 27 BC. That's when they started their conquest. They really, really hadn't taken hold as a world power until the 60s BC. But, you know, who's quibbling over 40 years, you know, that long ago? And then the iron and clay are the end times. And I really can't tell you what that looks like yet. But here's what I'm thinking. If this dream and Daniel's interpretation were correct about Babylon, about Media Persia, about the Greeks, about the Romans, my guess is we can rely on the rest of the vision for the future. The rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. The rock, not, not made, not formed by human hands. Oh, thank you. I couldn't talk yesterday, so this is great. But I can croak. We see this image of a rock come up a lot in the Old Testament. And it almost always refers to God himself. Let's go to the next slide. In Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. Next slide. I guess we don't have that. Okay. In Psalm 62, verse 7, it says this. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. In Isaiah 26, 4, it says this. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Over and over again, the image of a rock is used about God and his kingdom. Over and over again. And this is what it says in the prophet Daniel in chapter 2. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. God is going to set up a geopolitical kingdom that will cover the entire earth sometime in the future. I don't know what happens before then, but it's going to happen according to this dream. And I believe it because the rest of it's true. 
You know, we talk about this sometimes. We talk about this as a hope we have. We see it in the scriptures. It's full of this kind of talk about somehow there's this kingdom coming where finally everything will be as it ought to have been. In Isaiah chapter 11, listen to this. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. It doesn't say the goat won't get much sleep. It says, the calf and the lion and the yearling will lie down together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is a time coming when Jesus will rule the earth from Jerusalem. Do you know that when we sing Joy to the World at Christmas time, we're actually not talking about Jesus coming at Christmas time? We're actually thinking and talking about this second coming of Jesus to rule the earth? Think about it. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nation see the glory of his righteousness. He rules the world. That hasn't happened yet. But it will. Listen to this. The prophet Micah, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, I don't know if that's literal or figurative. There could be some topological changes going on before Jesus comes back to rule. I don't know. It will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. You don't have to settle disputes between strong nations in heaven. There will be no disputes between strong nations in heaven. We will be one people under the rule of God, and peace will prevail. This is an earthly kingdom. They will beat their swords into plowshares. There are no swords in heaven. At least no need of swords in heaven. They will turn their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I'm not done yet. Psalm 2, 6 through 8. The Lord says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession.
And here's the, one of the weirdest ones. I know that this isn't heaven because it says in the prophet Zechariah that we are all going to celebrate a Jewish festival across the whole entire earth. We're all going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you don't, there's consequences. Listen to this, Zechariah 14. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain for the following year. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. It says he's going to rule with a rod of iron. You will do the right thing. And if you don't do the right thing, there will be consequences. This is how we have peace and justice on the face of the whole earth. Because Jesus is ruling as the Lord, the King of Kings. And if you don't celebrate this feast, the tabernacles, you won't get any right. So take your pick. Jesus is coming back to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that should strip your gears. That should excite you to no end to realize that the Bible has predicted it, has predicted what has happened, and has predicted what will happen. And you have a part in it. You know, when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say this all the time. How do we start the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is his will done in heaven? All the time. Every day. Never stops. How will it be done here on earth? All the time. Every day. Never will stop. When Jesus comes back, we will finally have the world we've always dreamed of. Let's go back and finish that story, if you would, please, to say how Bible prophecy affected this German officer, and not just the German officer, but the whole troop. The commanding officer stopped for a moment, and then he said, Okay, it's unofficial. And he took off his hat and placed it on his desk, and my grandfather did the same. And he pulled out a Bible from his pocket, opened it up to Daniel chapter 2, and began to tell the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The image with a head of gold and arms and chest of silver and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay and went through the world empires that those represented, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And he said, we're now living down in the period of the disintegration of the Roman Empire after, after Rome fell and this is Europe today and this, this 
feet of iron mixed with clay and just as iron does not mix with clay that's the time period that we're living in and so I don't believe that Hitler is correct his empire cannot last a thousand years as he's promising the German people this war has to fail because of biblical prophecy and how everything has been fulfilled in the past his commanding officer was very thoughtful when the Bible study was over and then he said could I see your Bible I'd like to keep this and my grandfather said okay and he handed over the Bible and he said I want you to be here again tomorrow morning at nine o'clock you're dismissed the next day he showed up at nine o'clock and uh, only to see that there were two other high-ranking officers on other either side of his commanding officer and at that moment as he walked into the office he thought oh no for sure I've been betrayed but then his commanding officer took off his hat told the other two officers what their arrangement was and that everything that would be spoken would be not repeated again and handed back my grandfather his Bible and my grandfather opened it up to Daniel 2 as he was told that he would have to tell that Bible study all over again and so that's what he did he went through the Bible study went through each of those medals on that on that image and as he went through those medals he talked about the dates and every time he mentioned an empire like Babylon and the dates of 605 to 539 he noticed some communication going between his officer and the other two officers, kind of imperceptible, but there. And he continued the Bible study and came to the end and said, we are now living in the time period of the feet of iron mixed with clay, and they do not cleave to one another, and for that reason, we will not have a unified European or world empire that's going to last a thousand years. Hitler's Third Reich cannot last a thousand years. And as he delivered that, that message, there was silence in the room. He was dismissed again, and as he was leaving, the commanding officer said, oh, by the way, I should introduce you to the other two gentlemen here. And he said, this is, this is a captain, and prior to his, his time here in the German army and his drafting into the German army, he was a professor of history. And then he was introduced to the other gentleman, too, who had been a professor of history as well in his civilian days, just before the war. He says, both of these men have corroborated all the dates that you provided in the sequence and the history that you've provided here. Thank you very much. Several months later, in May of 1945, the war ended. And as they were now faced with the whole uh, issue of retreating and going back to Germany, what had taken them months and years to accomplish, uh, the big question was, how are they, how are they going to make it? But unknown to my grandfather and to the rest of the unit, this commanding officer, having been convinced several months earlier, had rationed every ounce of gasoline, every bit of food possible, because he knew that this war would end soon, based on that Bible study, and that they would have to retreat. You know, as he told me that story later, he said, and there's been a book published now on this story called A Thousand Shall Fall, of the original 1,200 men that were in his unit, only seven survived, which is remarkable when you think about it because my grandfather was a strong, had a strong conviction not to bear arms and he carried a wooden pistol with him that he had carved while he was in France at the first part of the war that he carried with him for the rest of the war and nobody ever knew that but he, he, he wasn't armed the entire time. And my grandfather often said afterwards that he believed that God had really been with him, that he had been protected and that it was for moments like those when he was able to bear testimony of God's word and biblical prophecy that made, had made all the difference for him and for his family and for his life. When Jesus had his last supper with his disciples, he said something interesting. 
He said, taking some bread, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My, my blood spilled for you. I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you anew in my kingdom. Jesus has been fasting from wine. From that day until the day he comes back and sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem, just as the prophet Daniel foretold 500 years before Jesus entered the scene. Today, as we take communion here at Scum of the Earth, I want you to think and remember not just what Jesus did on the cross to save us from our sins and to bring us into relationship with God, but I also want you to think about the future kingdom where he will rule the earth with truth and with grace and will make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you break into human history every now and then and give us a glimpse of what is going to happen. Thank you for your word that it is 100% true, 100% of the time. May this word from your scriptures encourage us to follow you and never give up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.